Asynchronous text-based therapy is you create a relationship with your therapist and you can interact at any time via text and it's not immediate, it's asynchronous. But also you can exchange text, videos, audio and have a, you're essentially building a relationship with your therapist and you're able to capture in the moment whatever issues are going on. What's the future of health? Join doctors Jessica Shepard, Gotham Gulati, and myself, Jordan Schlain, as we embark on a conversational journey with prominent speakers, experts, and innovators from the stages of the annual health conference. The goal is to explore the ideas that put humanity at the front and center of our evolving healthcare system. After all, health is about people, isn't it? Hi, I'm Dr. Gotham Gulati. On today's episode, we bring you Dr. Varun Chaudhary, where we discuss the future of mental health care. Varun is a board-certified forensic psychiatrist and the chief medical officer at Talkspace, a leading virtual behavioral health company that offers convenient and affordable access to a fully credentialed network of highly qualified providers. Talkspace provides its members access to a licensed mental health provider across wide and growing spectrum of care through virtual counseling, psychotherapy, and psychiatry. So with that, let's begin the conversation. Welcome to the Health Matters Podcast. I'm excited for today's conversation. We're joined by Varun Chaudhary, who's the Chief Medical Officer of Talkspace. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So Talkspace, of course, has been around for some time and a leader in the industry in terms of behavioral therapy. And, and it's probably seen some interesting statistics over the years in terms of what challenges we face in our country when it comes to our mental health. And, and certainly, even if you just look at the past 10 years, I think Talkspace was founded in 2011. That's is correct. That, is that correct? Yeah, 2011. So even in the past 10 years, there have been significant shifts in how we think about, address, and talk about mental health issues and behavioral health issues in this country. So I'm just curious if you can maybe take us back. Is there an evolution that you've seen that's been interesting in the mental health world that that's really caught your interest? Absolutely. So it's interesting that a lot of what has happened in our mental health industry is impacted by the regulatory legislative environment. So I'm going to take you back to the early 90s when the DRG system was created and the Diagnostic Related Group procedural codes, CBT codes, when they were created, they really couldn't wrap their heads around, no pun intended, behavioral health. And so they excluded that from medical DRG system. And so what happened is that they created a two-tiered system. One is where you've got medical procedural-based CBT codes and then whatever that was left over was behavioral health. That's when you had managed care behavioral health companies that were doing all the carve-out. So when you look at the evolution of reimbursement systems in mental health, it was always like the secondary market after the rest of medicine got funded. And so fast forward to 20 years later, and you've got this dichotomy where mental health is somewhat stigmatized and not even in the reimbursement world. Like psychiatrists for a long time were the lowest paid specialist and they would get 
a lower reimbursement for spending the same amount of time that a primary care physician would. And so that evolved into a situation where psychiatrists decided that they were going to opt out of taking insurance. So during the pandemic, they looked at, at data and they had found that almost 50% of psychiatrists in the country didn't take insurance. And that trickled down to therapists and other behavioral health clinicians. And so part of the crisis that we have right now in mental health stems from things that have happened back in the 90s and even earlier and has to do with the fact that we don't have enough numbers, but we also had a, had a disparity and reimbursements as well. So talk to me about what's broken in the existing psychiatric space. And we, we clearly there's a plenty of psychiatrists out there. They weren't filling a need that the marketplace needed that Talkspace felt like they had a solution for. Talkspace became very innovative. So we were the first digital behavioral health company and they pioneered the whole concept of text-based therapy. Mm -hmm. Asynchronous text-based therapy is you create a relationship with your therapist and you can interact at any time via text and it's not immediate, it's asynchronous, but also you can exchange text, videos, audio, and have a, you're essentially building a relationship with your therapist and you're able to capture in the moment whatever issues are going on. So, for example, it's 11 p.m. at night and you had a huge fight with your spouse and you're feeling really down. You can capture all that in text and your, your therapist, maybe the next morning or even later on that night, depending, will answer. And you build that relationship and it's something very powerful. And that isn't something that was mainstream. And so, can you, can you build ago. a similar relationship via tech? I mean, does is it does it give you that same element of trust and and you know vulnerability that you would have in person? It's surprising because in some instances you build a tighter relationship. So, if you look at traditional face to face therapy, which is the gold standard, you see your therapist once a week. You may have to drive forty five minutes or an hour if you're in LA too, or DC, take, you're in second traffic. Mm -hmm. So you drive an hour, you sit there if for 45 minutes to spend that time face-to-face -face with the therapist, you drive back. So it's essentially taking half of your day. The convenience that you have with asynchronous therapy, the privacy that you also have, and the ability to share whatever is going on in the moment, instead of having to wait one week and unless you capture all that in a diary or a journal or whatever, you really won't be able to express the emotional impact it had. So that is an advantage of asynchronous chat-based therapy. We have, Talkspace has a huge research department that has had over 20 publications. And the whole impetus behind that is to prove what we are doing is effective and it works. So we have a published study from 2020 that we did in conjunction with NYU and Cornell Tech. And we looked at over 10,000 patients who were diagnosed with depression and anxiety and were using chat-based therapy as their main modality. And we had significant improvement in their symptoms. So we do have a number of studies to show how effective asynchronous therapy can be. 
In what situations does it not? That's a very good question. And that's the situation. It's you've got options and you've got different modalities, but it's not going to always work for everybody. There might be people who really need to have that face-to-face meeting and connection and have that brick-and-mortar experience. And sometimes they may be seeing their therapist in person two or three times a week. And they're not necessarily to say that they wouldn't do well with asynchronous therapy, but they may be a better fit for somebody in person. We tend to have healthcare. We tend to swing the pendulum pretty far in either direction. And you have some that fall into the camp of you got to go digital first, and then others that are like, no, brick and mortar first. But ultimately, a lot of times it's not either or, it's both. Absolutely. Right? It's both and. And I'm wondering if, if you guys see yourself ever migrating to the point where you might have some brick and mortar facilities, or do you think that you're just going to remain as a digital driven solution and then partner at maybe perhaps? I, I think looking at the industry as a whole, you don't rule anything out. You, you look at all options and really look at how to best serve the patients there. The, the nice thing about being over a decade of an established company is that we've got a, we, we really are building a full spectrum comprehensive model of care where we've got our self-guided, which is kind of our entry point, And that can triage all the way up to seeing a psychiatrist for medications. So we've got clinicians, therapists, psychiatrists, we've got a self-guided module. So we're really trying to make it so we can meet the patient where they are and help guide their journey. And if they need to be hospitalized or are experiencing an acute issue, we work with their payers to coordinate care. Do you feel there's some level of responsibility? And we've seen, unfortunately, many shootings, a lot of criminal activity. And a lot of people say, well, it's, it's, it's our, our system where they fell through the cracks, you know, oftentimes blaming our mental health system that basically has not alerted the appropriate authorities or whoever it might be to intervene. Is there any, does an organization like Talkspace need to burden any or shoulder any of that burden or is there a responsibility there to, how do you, how do you approach that? You know, looking at it from a systemic perspective, if you look at the history of funding mental health in this country, we started, there was a movement in the 60s that started to shut down all the hospitals and and it was the deinstitutionalization movement but if you look at the rates of closure there's a direct relationship between closing down the hospitals and in the incarceration of those with mental illnesses and so it's it's actually a transinstitutionalization if you will Thomas Inselden mentioned that in his book, and it's very interesting because it's very true. The funding to build more prisons has essentially gone way up as all the state hospitals have been closed down. So we're in a crisis right now because we have such a huge bed shortage, and we've got people waiting in emergency departments for days and days and days trying to get uh, trying to get admitted to a hospital. So we have a systemic crisis in this country. But again, I'm going to just throw that question back out there again. Like how do, is, it, is, it an organiz- is it the company's responsibility and collectively, not just Talkspace, but others in the space as well, who reports things? Like what's the, 
I just feel like it's a it's a blame game back and forth that ultimately we need tracking mechanisms that alert the appropriate individuals. The, fir- anyway, the first thing I would say is that not everyone that picks up a gun and and does what they do has a mental health history. We don't know if they have a mental illness that's driven them to act that way. If you look at the data from uh, years and years and years of, of study, someone with a mental illness is no more violent than the normal person in society. So that is one thing we've got to keep in mind because that, again, stigmatizes mental illness. So we've got to be We've got to be cognizant of the fact that just because you have a mental illness, that doesn't make you more of a violent person. Part of what we have to look at is how do we partner private companies, state facilities, state institutions, state-driven, for example, Medicaid and others that look at community-based solutions? How can we be partners with them? How can we partner with payers and payers partner with states and make a a whole cohesive system. That's kind of what we're missing. Other countries have that kind of safety net and they've got, they've got a cohesive behavioral health solution and we're still looking for that. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I think just having it, you know, drawing awareness around it, I think is important, but I look forward to seeing how that ultimately plays out because I do think that there's some level of responsibility across many different organizations and authorities as well. So you guys have been, you know, back to being around for for 10 years. That means you guys were here during this little blip that we've had called the pandemic, the COVID pandemic. And so, you know, a lot of stuff happened during that time. We learned a lot. What did you learn about your members? Do you call them members or patients or customers? What do you being a physician, I always call them patients. I, I don't know what the politically correct term is, a, a consumer, a member, however we want to well, describe it. What did it. you learn about them in the process in terms of how they utilize your services and what, what did you adjust accordingly based on what you learned? I think the only silver lining around the pandemic is it really shone a spotlight on how important mental health, mental wellness is. And so we had lots of companies pop up and really start offering mental health services. The advantage that we have at Talkspace is because we've been around for such a long time, we're tried and true. We have such an emphasis on clinical quality and, and we've got a very clear understanding of what is the standard of practice and what is not. So one thing we realized is that there was a significant uptick in the needs of individuals. Why? I think people became aware that the pandemic was not a normal experience and collectively people started to understand how important it was to seek help when you're having issues. And so I would say the the rates of depression and anxiety skyrocketed to the point where there was a recent Kaiser Foundation, Family Foundation finding that almost two-thirds of Americans reported some kind of mental health issues during the pandemic. And we had a lot of individuals seeking out medications, for example. Now, Talkspace does not prescribe controlled substances. We've never prescribed controlled substances, and I don't plan on ever having that change. I'll, I'll be the first person to walk out the door if they decide they're going to reverse that. Because I found it's 
when Talkspace was created and we started, we actually created our psychiatry division, I think it was in 2018, the Ryan Haidt Act was the law. Now, just because it was relaxed for the public health emergency doesn't change the fact that the reason it was put into place is because Ryan Haidt hopped on the internet, got some opioids prescribed to him after seeing somebody on a screen for 30 minutes and overdosed. I would say that it, it probably is not a safe way to go about prescribing. If you are in another state, you've never seen the patient before, you're prescribing these medications, you really can't monitor what's going on if you don't have a relationship, you haven't built a relationship, you haven't spent enough time with that person. And quite frankly, as the Ryan Act says, you gotta see that person, you gotta see them in person mm -hmm. in order to have that kind of yeah. prescribing relationship. Yeah, I think that makes uh, very good sense, actually. And I think I wish a lot of others had that same perspective as you do. You know, I'm, what about the utilization of technology during that time? I think we saw a skyrocketing. I mean, everyone was forced to use technology, whether you liked it or not, Absolutely. right? We became that sort of Zoom period. QR codes came back. Everything came back digitally. And then everyone thought that this was it. This was going to be the, 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 you know, the, the moment for telehealth and the moment for all of these video technologies to essentially have its day. But then we saw a drop off, right? We, we entered the world again. We saw a drop off except one space, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Why do you think that is? I've been, so I can tell you, I've been practicing telepsychiatry since 2006. And so I remember when I first discovered it, feeling this elated experience of, oh my God, this is going to be revolutionary. This is going to change the practice of behavioral health. And while I saw it grow, there wasn't really that, that evolutionary jump until the pandemic. So. I was at Magellan Health at the time when the pandemic hit. I was their chief medical officer of behavioral health. And we saw utilization go from less than 5% to 85% during the pandemic. And it was absolutely fascinating. And it was a victory for telehealth. The reason I've always been such a huge fan of telepsychiatry is because I think behavioral health is designed very well for that modality. And given in the past the kind of stigma we had with behavioral health, there were privacy issues. There were people were embarrassed to come out and, and get treatment. They, I remember the days of having, there were practices where a psychiatrist had a secret entrance and exit for people because they, you know, they don't want to be seen in a, the same waiting room. And so all of those things are issues we had that we no longer did with telehealth and telepsychiatry. So it really helped people seek treatment and help destigmatize mental health in general or mental illnesses in general. So I was very happy about that. We reached a homeostasis where it was about 47, 48% of behavioral health visits were still done virtually. And that's not the same for the rest of medicine. Yeah, I think that's definitely one of those things that's, that's remained sticky. And I think it's basically opened up a new I don't want to say market opportunity, but it's opened up a new way of, of giving those who otherwise may not have engaged with the system a way to engage, right? It's like it's created those who may have been fearful to go into a traditional system now have a way to be able to do it and feel comfortable in, in whatever which way works for them. Absolutely. Um, and I would say that if you look at healthcare workers during the pandemic, 
we found that their, the burnout rate of healthcare workers was way above 50%. We actually had a study that we did in March of 2020 where we use chat-based asynchronous therapy and almost 2,000 healthcare workers. And we found we were using natural language processing to really look at the words, what they were using, and how best to help them, and found that there was a statistically significant improvement in those individuals that were getting the treatment. And when we looked at our data, we found there were a lot of present tense action words. So there was a lot of texting from work mm -hmm. when they were stressed out. So this gave them a lifeline they may not have otherwise had. So that's why I'm such a fan of the different modalities that's going on in the digital space, because it's, it's, the, it's the meeting of innovation, access, and treatment. Is it always a human on the other end, or do you have chatbot type of functionality as well? We've only used licensed clinicians from the beginning. And I know there probably is a place for chatbots, but I'm still not convinced a chatbot mm -hmm. can replace that human connection, especially someone with a, you know, a licensed clinician who's trained to do this kind of treatment. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I mean, maybe for things like low cases of anxiety or things like that, maybe just for nudging and, and things like that, there might be some elements for that or use cases for it. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the crisis of mental health as a population. The prevalence has clearly gone up. And I'm curious, you can always look at it as have, have more cases come about? Or are we better at just recognizing it? What's your thought process around it? Do you think, we're, or maybe it's a combination of both? It's probably a combination of both. Yeah, I mean, I think I would, uh, I would agree with that. It's a combination of both. It's a matter of people who've probably always had these issues finally feeling comfortable seeking treatment. We've had the huge societal upheaving of, uh, because of the pandemic causing a lot of the symptoms of anxiety and depression mm -hmm. in the population. And then we've also found better ways of engaging and giving access to those individuals. So what does that slice look like? If I were to sort of create a, a pie chart of where predominantly our crisis, like sort of root causes of our mental health crisis looking, what is, what is it? What's, what's, what's that slice look like and how has it evolved? Is it, I mean, if you think about the early days of talk space, I mean, Facebook, Twitter, all that social media stuff was just recent, right? The phone was even recent as a whole, that's 2007. Now, <laughs> 10, 20, like we can't put these machines down. We're hooked to them. And so I'd imagine that, that that pie chart has changed, right? From a different type of crisis in 2012 compared to what we have now. And I'm curious, what does that pie look like? So I would look at the data that came out of the CDC and NIMH and, and looking at the populations. The populations that were hit the hardest from the pandemic and everything that has gone on are the child and adolescent population and then the substance use disorder addiction. If we look at the way we interact with social media and our phones and all of that, it's not too similar from an addiction. And so we have... Well, it's, it's a clear dopamine response. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's exactly. triggering the same receptors as, as any other yes. addictive substance. Yeah. So there's, there have been data analyses done on people who are fixated on the likes or whatever else. I mean, social media has immense power and we're just learning about all of what's going on behind the scenes. And quite frankly, they're looking at it from a how do we maximize engagement? 
And on the other side, as a psychiatrist, I'm looking at it as, is this another addiction? Do you see loneliness as a mental health crisis? Because our U.S. Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, talks about loneliness being one of our biggest crises of our time. If you or, look, or, is, or is that just a factor of other? I think the issues with loneliness actually predate the pandemic. And this has been going on for a long time. And I think social media has both helped and hurt in the situation. If you look at neurochemically what happens with loneliness, it's, it's a stressor. And it's akin to driving your cortisol levels up and having that kind of same reaction. So there is something very risky that goes on with loneliness as a factor that can impact health. Talkspace is global, correct? We've got a whole team in Israel because okay. Talkspace originally was an Israel-based company. And we do have some EAP programs that we do across the globe. Okay. So I want to get into this, this notion of language because I think words matter in healthcare, especially in a category that has come with a lot of historical stigmas in a variety of different cultures. And so I'd imagine you have to be extremely sensitive in terms of how you talk about it, how you mention it, you know, cultures here versus cultures in India, Yes, you know, respond to different words differently. What's the language that you guys use? Is it, is it mental health? Is it psychiatric issues? Is it, is it something else? Like, how do you dance around that? It comes down to the savviness of the clinician. And it would really be that clinician being open to building that relationship and being culturally sensitive and aware of what goes on in those countries. You know, we're both Indian. And when we were growing up, I'm sure it was the same situation where, you know, you really didn't address these issues. You didn't talk about if you had depression, anxiety, ADHD, whatever else. It, it's not something that was openly discussed. And so while things have drastically changed in this country, other countries are not quite there yet. And so there still is that stigma that can occur. And so the, the privacy and the access helps in that situation, but that clinician still has to be savvy and feel comfortable understanding the cultural differences. So as we, we come to a close here, I do want to ask two additional questions of you. And one is, I'm always curious, you know, in healthcare, these are tough industries. This is a tough thing to crack, right? And oftentimes we all have personal reasons why we do the things that we do. And I'm curious, what's your why? Like, why did you get into this space? Why does it matter to you? And what kind of difference do you ultimately want to make here? So for me, it was always looking at it as I've got to figure out my own issues. And once I figure out my own issues, how can I then use that to help others? And that was my driving force. And so I only went to medical school to become a psychiatrist. I, I was actually in graduate school in psychology and making that decision between going PhD or MD and mm -hmm. so became a psychiatrist. And my motivation was always, I want to make sure that people who are experiencing mental health issues have somebody and someone they can go to, have the ability to get that help and get that treatment that they need. And it went from individuals to populations and you know, population health management at a managed care level, and now to a provider level where globally, are we able to make a difference? And it always goes back down to 
the mission. Talkspace's mission was originally to, was the catchphrase was therapy for all. They wanted to democratize therapy. And it's really, how can we provide the greatest access of behavioral health, clinically evidence-based, high-quality behavioral health to those individuals out there? And that's why I do what I do, and that's why I'm proud to be Talkspace's CMO. Thank you for sharing that. I'm, I'm curious, as a last question for you, are there practices that you put in place personally when you get up, go to bed, to sort of uh, calm the mind and, and keep yourself from not having to enter that system? So I've been a big fan of meditation since graduate school. And I've, I always try to take out five or 10 minutes during the day and just sit and meditate and kind of be mindful and, and turn everything else off. And it's very reju rejuvenating. And so that's kind of my practice. I, I'm a firm believer in taking time every day to do something that helps relax you and helps activate your parasympathetic system if you want to get technical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I appreciate you giving, giving us the insights and, and really helping millions of people in, 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 a, in, a, in a really in a crisis that's that needs to be addressed. So thank you very much, Varun. It was a great having you on this podcast. And again, I'm Dr. G, and this is the Health Matters Podcast. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you're still there, I'm hoping it's because you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. We will be releasing new episodes regularly. And to stay on top of the hottest topics, simply subscribe to Health Matters. That's H-L-T-H Matters on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. See you next time.